Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today and we declare that there will be a day. We believe that there is a day coming when all will bow before Jesus Christ as Lord and all will confess him as king and death will be no more. And until that day, we know that there is death and toil and trouble in our world. And so would you teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Even in these moments, teach us, Lord. By the power of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Have you ever thought very hard about what will happen after you're gone? What will happen after you live your life, breathe your last, and depart from this world? Whether that happens 90 minutes from now or 90 years from now. If you have close family or friends and they will likely gather together to mourn and to celebrate you and your life. They'll have your body buried or burned, plan a funeral, and use up lots of tissue. But one other thing that will happen is that they will have to figure out what to do with your stuff. Right? They'll have to, to pass on your money, divvy up your belongings, maybe sell some of it, maybe bring some to a thrift store or leave some on the curb with the garbage. <laughs> now, question. How does this sobering fact affect how we live today? How we study today or work today or play today? Well, I invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 in a Bible. And if you don't have one, there's one in the seats in front of you, hopefully. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where we will continue our journey through Ecclesiastes as Solomon continues his, you could call it an epic experiment or quest that he's on. A couple weeks ago, we saw him start this quest for anything that wasn't vanity in life. And he's then taken us through the major pursuits of people in life, what we go after one by one, starting by looking at human wisdom and knowledge. Is it the answer? And, and look at, looking back at chapter 1, verse 12 with me, where he says this, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So he's disappointed with his search. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. And then he looks at the wisdom, like I said. In verse 17, he says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. So it's not the answer. So how about pleasure or comfort? Well, no. That frustrates fallen people. Verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. 
Look down to verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, all the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So, if wisdom and pleasure can't cut it, how about finding purpose and value in our work? Should we just pour ourselves into working hard to, to leave our mark on this world? Well, that's exactly what Solomon will turn to consider next, as do many people in our world. Have you ever heard of the term hustle culture? Or maybe hustle and grind ideology? The basic idea is we need to push ourselves to work Hard, 110% to, to find purpose or success in life. It's what some have called toil glamour. It's ambition and grit. It's, it's willfully and consistently working overtime. It's adding side hustles to our regular jobs. Or it's the guilt we may feel when we are doing anything outside of work, non-work related. But it goes beyond just our jobs. It spills over to all of life. As one article said, it's the ideology of pursuing a future version of the self, tougher, harder, more successful, more complete, through relentless self-improvement. So it's Joe Rogan saying to challenge yourself, never give up, and grind till you win. Or we see it in productivity books, or uni libraries, or the glut of fitness programs today. Work harder, faster, stronger, every single day. Now this is nothing new under the sun, though. Countless generations have glorified productivity with high work ethics and long work hours. But hustle culture rebrands these ideas for a new era. Do what you love. Don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you're done. Own your moment. No struggle, no gain, no progress. Go hard or go home. Hashtag beast mode. Hashtag TGIM. Thank God it's Monday. <laughs> Rise and grind. <laughs> Rise and grind. Nike actually preached that slogan in an ad campaign a few years ago. And Damon John, the Shark Tank entrepreneur, entitled his book that said, rise and grind, outperform, outwork, and out-hustle your way to a more successful and rewarding life. That's what we're after, right? A successful life, a rewarding life. Like Solomon, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? There's got to be some gain, some profit, some reward out there. So hustle for it. Now, it's hard to tell what Gen Z is doing with all this, whether they're rejecting hustle culture or just rebranding it further. 
But there is a definite reaction against hustle culture today, seeing it as unhealthy, unsustainable, harmful, or even toxic. The pendulums always swinging back and forth between comfort culture, which you looked at last week, and hustle culture. But Solomon could have saved our generations the trouble of getting disillusioned by work. As after examining wisdom and pleasure, the final step on his quest is to consider our work. First, though, he took one more hard look at wisdom and its opposites. Look with me at verse 12 in chapter 2. It says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Perhaps he thought, maybe I missed something on my first go-around. Or more likely, maybe he's looking at things from a slightly different angle this time. When he first looked at wisdom in chapter 1, he was thinking of what happiness wisdom could give him now. And he came up empty, only getting unhappier as he got wiser. But now he's thinking more long-term, wondering if wisdom pays off in the end. Also, I think he's more considering acting wisely now than learning wisdom. So his focus is on living wisely, on doing instead of knowing. Okay? Besides, part of Solomon's actual toil and work in life was to be supremely wise. His hobby was collecting proverbs from all over and writing proverbs. His passion was teaching wisdom to his children or to his people. And his job as king involved exercising all kinds of wisdom, leading and planning and judging. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Now that likely means something like, no one after me can do this better. I'm a hard act to follow. So it might as well be me to really figure this out, to exhaust this search. And in verse 13, it seems he finally had a bit of a breakthrough. Look at it. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So what do we gain in life? Well, he says there is some gain in being wise after all. Even if wisdom can't necessarily make us happier, it's still better than the alternative. He says, wisdom is preferable to folly in the way that light is preferable to darkness. It's like wisdom helps us see as eyes take in light while folly keeps us blind. Continues in verse 14. The wise person has eyes in his head, means he can see, but the fool walks in darkness. How many times have you gotten up in the middle of the night thinking that you know where everything is, only to trip over something or to stub your toe anyway? That's the picture of the fool, right? Groping and stumbling around in the dark. And thus, in life, not knowing how to live, making a, making a mess of life. 
Meanwhile, a, a wise person can actually see their way around life. Wisdom helps us know how best to live, how to please God, how to love other people. And that really is gain. It's gain. Even if wisdom has limited value, as we saw, it is legitimately advantageous. However, in true Ecclesiastes fashion, Solomon can't let us see too much light under the sun. So he quickly steps over to pull the shade shut again. Verse 14 again. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What event do you think that is? They both graduate from school, both get jobs, both start families, they both get standing ovations from the Canadian Parliament. <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> now, as we'll see shortly, Solomon had one particular event in mind. Death. Death happens to all. Like if this book had a soundtrack, this is where you'd hear the ominous music come in. Our fallen world, we've seen it, it's an unhappy place. Wisdom can make it unhappier. Pleasure frustrates. But all of these problems are eclipsed by the greatest problem of our human condition. And that's that death encroaches on all of our lives, no matter how much we like to ignore it. It's the great equalizer. Being wise is better than being stupid, sure. Life will be better. But no one, wise or foolish, can stop from hurtling through life toward death. And verse 15 says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. We're all leveled by our eventual mortality. No matter what we die, all our lives are fleeting. And, and just how frustrating is that? It's vanity. See, wisdom before death doesn't secure lasting legacies. That's the first major point I think we see here, that wisdom before death. Before death, wisdom can't secure lasting legacies for fallen people like us. And death puts everything in perspective. Like, what will we have gained in the end? Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise. And I said in my heart that this also was vanity. Like, what's the point of living wisely if our deaths will all be the same? That's, that's what Solomon's asking here. We're all striving to leave our mark as if we're running in a marathon, but racing death is a race that we're all eventually going to lose. Sure, we might see life better now, but ultimately what 
difference does that make? No matter how brilliant we are, we end up in a box in the ground or an urn, just like the biggest idiots around. John Carpenter describes this dilemma well. Because being able to see with keen philosophical insight doesn't enable him to dodge the ditch of death. Maybe he can live a little longer, a little more comfortably. He sees what makes life easier. He sees that, for example, smoking is dangerous, that drunkenness destroys the liver and probably the family, that if he or she wants a, to, wants a comfortable aid, old age and the kids able to live better, he or she will have to hunker down and work for decades. Sure, that's wisdom, but what's the gain in the end? The end isn't retirement in a nice house. The end is the grave, and when you go there, you'll have exactly what you started with when you came out of the womb. No gain. You'll have exactly what the fool ends with who smoked and drank too much and didn't study or work hard. Alexander the Great once saw his friend Diogenes standing alone in a field. He was intently staring at a pile of human bones. And Alexander asked him, what's up? And Diogenes said, I'm searching for the bones of your father, Philip, but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Vanity, or, or like that word means, vapor or breath. It's fleeting, frustrating. It's like the, the bubbles my kids blew in our yard this week. The bubbles really are there, and they bring delight. But after floating for a few seconds, they all pop. Gone. Death is like someone going around and popping all our bubbles. <laughs> any gain, any happiness or delight we have in life is brief. It's temporary. And Solomon's hoping with his wise living to find or to establish something truly lasting. He wants something to last, but in a fallen world that's been cursed with death, he found this impossible. Look at verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Do you want to make a lasting impact with your life? I bet you do, whether you realize it or not. Try this thought experiment. Say you wake up tomorrow and no one knows who you are. And no one recognizes your face. If you have a family or you live with roommates, they'd all be freaked out tomorrow by the total stranger in your home. No one remembers any significant part you played in their lives. You're not allowed to into your workplace as they don't think you work there. There's no record of you even existing in the hospital or government records. We're wiped out with no trace. How would you feel? That'd be a nightmare, right? Why? You'd be devastated, but why? Because 
We want to be known. We want to be remembered. We want to leave a legacy ultimately. We work to make an impact in something, whether that means getting personal recognition, making a difference in our field, making a difference in our family, making our world a better place to live. So it's startling to realize that even if we somehow achieved all our dreams, that there's no true lasting achievements in this fallen world. And if there's no enduring remembrance, then we ask with Solomon, what's the point of even trying to live wisely? Can you feel his frustration here? In your bones. Feel it in your mortal bones. This frustration all stems back to death, which is what causes us to be forgotten. But where did death come from? Why is it such a a universal experience of futility? Well, when God created our first ancestors... He said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Spoiler alert, we ate of it. In the most epic act of folly ever, we sinned against our Creator somehow thinking that we knew better than him about what was good for us. And God then justly cursed this world with all kinds of vanity, including death. And therefore, people who are made for immortality with eternal souls are now born as mortals. And that is so frustrating to us. We feel the drive to live forever, but we can't. Or even if we're resigned to death, we think, well, at least I can be remembered. But if we're honest, there's not much remembrance to go around. So what's the solution? Well, for our sin, we need a Savior. We need the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. Otherwise, we're doomed. The good news is that we are given all of that in Jesus, who lived and died in our place. But also, if we really want to beat death, we need a death defeater. Otherwise, What's ultimately the point of living for God if we're just going to disintegrate one day like so many soap bubbles? And the good news is that Jesus has defeated death, paving the way for all of us to follow. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, or you could say it's vanity, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
So because of him, if you've confessed Jesus as Lord, believed in your heart that he was raised from the dead, then your death will not be your end. And you can approach death with confidence, knowing that it's a defeated enemy. And your loved ones can leave, that you leave behind can grieve with hope, not despair. And if that's not you yet, we actually hope you will despair over death in this fallen world and run to Jesus. The only solution. When you do this, we believe you'll be remembered by the eternal God. Which means, like Jesus and like Solomon, in fact, you will never actually be forgotten. Did you notice that irony here? That even as Solomon lamented the lack of remembrance, we actually do remember him. Millennia later, God's word will stand forever. Following him gives us true and lasting significance. But if we don't, ever reconcile with the giver and taker of life, we should despair. And from Solomon's perspective, under the sun, in a, in a fallen and broken world, and he couldn't see God's coming solution to death yet, so he despaired. Look at verse 17. It's a, it's a dark verse. It says, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and is striving after wind. Now, even though I don't believe we should hate life, does that not resonate at all with us? I was recently talking with someone close to me who admitted, I hate my life right now. Welcome to life under the sun. Life in a broken cursed world can be hateable. And it can be hard to see a point in having wisdom or working hard. Nobel Prize winner Francois Moriac said, you can't imagine the torment of having had nothing out of life and of having to look forward to nothing but death, of feeling that there is no other world beyond this one and that the puzzle will never be explained. Like, that's life with human wisdom, but without a lasting legacy. It leads there. And if that's our conclusion, then what difference does it make how we really live? We might as well totally immerse ourselves in comfort culture or hustle culture, whatever we wish. Derek Kinder says, if, as we might put it, every card in our hand will be trumped, doesn't matter how we play. Throw your hand in, whine, pout, try to cheat. You still lose. And that brings us to our jobs, <laughs> or our hobbies, or our chores, or our exercise, or activities. In a word, our toil. Maybe living wisely won't make a lasting difference, but maybe our work will. Like, think about it. People throughout history have worked to make an impact, and much of their work still stands today. They've written books, made films, started companies, 
built buildings, even like this one, which were still reading their books, still watching their films, still using their companies, still appreciating their work today. And of course, we recognize that we wouldn't be around if it weren't for our parents and their parents and their parents and so on. So, yes, it's possible to leave our stamp upon this world. It might even be hard not, harder not to. But here's the rub about all that we're working towards right now. What ultimate personal benefit will we see from any of it? And will we always be around to enjoy the fruits of our labor? Let's pose the question differently. Does hustle culture provide a solution to our cursed condition? The other day, I was watching a documentary on the G League, the basketball minor league that's filled with players trying to make it to the NBA or make it back to the NBA. And one of these players, Gary Payton II, talked about the mindset he felt they needed in order to keep pushing toward their goals. And he said this, keep going. The storm can't last forever. So you just wake up, you know, don't fight it. Just take the punches and keep going. There's gonna be a light at the end of that, but you just gotta chop wood every day. You got to do the same thing over and over and over and over again, but you're working towards something, and sooner or later, it's for sure going to pay off. I could admire his optimism, maybe. But I think Solomon might push back. Like, why are you so certain there's light at the end? And why is it for sure going to pay off? What if it doesn't pay off? What then? Or what if it does pay off, but you don't get to enjoy what you accomplish? Someone else does. An article I read said, hustle culture is the search to justify the hustle for the future payoff of extreme success. But when is the payoff exactly? That's a great question. When is the payoff exactly? See, wisdom before death doesn't secure lasting legacies. And adding insult to injury, work before death doesn't secure lasting gains. Before death, our work doesn't secure lasting gains. Let's read the next paragraph together, starting in verse 18. It says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil, or that is a, a great misfortune or tragedy. Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So yes, we do actually gain plenty of things to our work in life. 
said this before, but you gain money from your job. You gain promotions for doing your job well. You gain a, a tidy or clean home from your housework. You gain good health from your fitness. Or should I say, G-A-I-N-Z gains. <laughs> you gain satisfaction from jobs well done. You gain joy from completed tasks. But everything you earn from all your hard work, all you accomplish or you accumulate, you're going to have to leave it all behind. You can't take it with you. That's the point of this whole paragraph. You can't take it with you. Go ahead, like bury yourself with all your treasure like an Egyptian pharaoh of old. Or hitch a U-Haul to your hearse. Won't make a lick of difference. Death empties all these things, these gains of their value, at least for you personally. And that's what makes them vanity. They aren't meaningless, but they are short-lived. And man, does that ever vex us. Like, this is stuff of midlife crises right here. Like Solomon's having a midlife crisis as he goes through this. Like, all our, our work and the fruits of our labor will be left to someone else. Our spouses or children or grandchildren, successors at work, new homeowners. Heck, some of our jobs are going to be handed over to robots or AI one day. <laughs> We're all really working for the next generation, whether we realize it or not. And while that can actually be a positive motivator if we use it right, like working, pouring into our kids or grandkids, those who come after us, out of love for them, can also be a depressing demotivator if we are focused on our personal benefits. In verse 19, he said, who knows whether he's going to be wise or a fool, yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. In other words, they could further my work or they could destroy my work. Ever pondered that? I know I have. I'm sure Pastor Bob wondered the same about me at times. In Solomon's case, he sadly spoke truer than he could have imagined because he left his kingdom to his son Rehoboam who is most well known for his folly. Rehoboam ignored wise advice from counselors, ended up losing five-sixths of his dad's kingdom. Like if Solomon was depressed at the mere possibility of this, how sad would he be if he knew how his wisdom and wealth and work would be wasted within one generation? In verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Ever hate your work? Been there? Done that? You despise your chores? Loathe your studies? Like you, don't, you don't need to have an existential crisis like Solomon to hate toil. That just comes with the territory of being human on this twisted world. 
whether you have a, a white-collar desk job or a blue-collar physical job or something in between, whether you work in health or finance or politics or education or ministry, whether you work nine to five or shift work, whether you're a kid in school or a homemaker or retired from work, don't you find that your toil can be so frustrating, so exhausting? In verse 22, Solomon mentions that his toil involved striving of heart. So it's not just physical. Our work takes a mental, emotional, even a spiritual toll on us. Lots of strain, little gain. And this, this is actually why the generation entering the workforce now is reacting against hustle culture. Because they've seen those older than them overwork with very little to show for it anyway. Hence, we're seeing headlines like, why a very aware Gen Z is rejecting hustle culture. One study found that 45% of young adults feel career and money do not define success. It's good. Instead, they're focused on finding work that's flexible and that makes them happy and fulfilled. However, even then, Jennifer Liu concludes, as it turns out, Gen Zers are every bit as ambitious and even more anxious as the overworked millennials before them, but they're redefining what success looks like. Hustle culture isn't dead. It's just getting a Gen Z rebrand. See, people aren't trying to climb a corporate ladder as much as they used to, but they are still working so hard to find greater freedom, greater fulfillment, and greater health. And she continues, plenty of young professionals are continuing the tradition of overworking for questionable gain. The rebrand of hustle culture is more about finding a good enough job that allows you to have a fulfilling life off the clock. In other words, a job to, to find your lifestyle to do fun thing, to fund your lifestyle to do fun things, or putting in the work to have an easier life. And thus the, we swing the pendulum right back. It's a comfort culture. Millennials are starting to wake up and smell the burnt coffee as well. A recent CNET article said, Hustle culture is facing an existential crisis with millennials. Millennials are wondering whether finding meaning in their job is a fruitless pursuit. And every generation could testify to this. Do you hear the echoes of Ecclesiastes in these writings? People are working as hard as ever in order to attain questionable gain in fruitless pursuits. It's vanity. Chasing the wind. We work in order to play, and that just creates a tragic cycle of ultimately nothingness. And we think, well, maybe, maybe retirement from work will provide the solution. Adam Mabry laments this, what we set our sights on in retirement, if we make it there says, what a monumental tragedy. We work 50-hour weeks for 50 years of our lives, only to find that at the end of all our efforts, we have earned the right to play golf, vacation, 
eat out more often, to suffer with overworked bodies and underdeveloped souls in the golden years of our lives seems like an irony and a tragedy the likes of which makes hell chuckle and heaven mourn. But this is how the world works, literally. And we Christians live in this ocean of overwork, and so without knowing it, we swim with its tides. We labor, catch this, we labor for that which cannot last, only to rest in that which cannot satisfy. Even the times we're meant to be resting from our toil get mixed up in all this. As Solomon said at the end of verse 23, even in the night, his heart does not rest. Think of how much overwork and insomnia affect our ability to rest properly these days. Now, work wasn't always meant to be so difficult and unfulfilling. God actually designed us to work and to find delight and purpose in our work as image bearers of the God who works. But ever since the curse, when God caused thorns to pop up in our gardens, toil is our reality. Yes, we, we still feel little vestiges of the way God designed work and the joys that we do feel in it. But we also feel fatigue and stress and pain and tedium and oppression and failure, and exhaustion and greed, competition, envy, selfish ambition, loss, burnout, and depression through our work now. And yet, we foolishly expect our work to give us a sense of purpose or fulfillment in life now. That'll inevitably disappoint us because work makes a horrendous God. Our toil in a fallen world isn't divine. It's divinity. We work and graduate and work and switch jobs and work and lose jobs and work and retire and we, leave, we work some more and then we leave it all behind. And if that sounds really bleak, perhaps we haven't grappled with the reality of death enough. Or maybe we're just really good at distracting ourselves. Multitude of diversions all around. As Peter Kreeft memorably illustrates it, you find the rhinoceros in the middle of your house. The rhinoceros is wretchedness and death. How in the world can you hide a rhinoceros? Easy. Cover it with a million mice. <laughs> Multiple diversions. We're trying to live in bubbles, acting like they'll never pop. But they will on the horns of a rhino. Dying can make all our work seem like one huge waste of time and effort, and thus we come to the end, we despair. Like Solomon, verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Verse 22, what has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. We're tempted to call it quits, to give up, but that's not what Solomon intends to have us do here. Not many things in life become an idol 
more easily than work. Or what we gain from work. So, we need to put work in its proper, rightful place. Just as we did with wisdom and pleasure. Work is a good thing inherently. It's given to us by God to to have dominion, to steward, to cultivate the earth for the sake of human flourishing and the glory of God. But face it, work under the sun will often be fleeting and frustrating. That doesn't mean we don't do it. We still should press on diligently, but we must find our ultimate purpose and joy in life beyond the sun. In God, like I've been repeating often, Ecclesiastes means to depress us into dependence. And not much is more depressing or makes us feel more dependence than death. But there will be a day. There will be a day when work is once again a total pleasure and delight. When we, with resurrected bodies, are given our first ever real jobs, God hasn't given up on his beautiful yet broken world. He hasn't given up on us. He has rested from his work of creation but he hasn't rested from his work of redemption. Yes, death still looms like a a specter over us. None of us will escape it unless Christ returns first. And yet, in God's mercy, he prevented death from having the final word. Like theologian Gordon Spikeman put so well, he grants his creatures a stay of execution. He holds the full force of the death penalty in abeyance. Thus he makes room for the renewal of life, for his unfolding plan of salvation, for Israel, for planting a cross on a hill outside Jerusalem, for the empty tomb, for the church, for the coming of the kingdom, and ultimately for a paradise regained where death will be forever banished and life in its fullness restored. There will be a day when death will be no more. And if nothing else, if nothing else, the words we hear in Ecclesiastes should make us yearn and pray for that day. When our days will no longer be full of sorrow because God will wipe all our tears away. When our work will no longer be vexations, but very fulfilling missions. And when even as we serve the Lord, we will have eternal rest from our labors. No more darkness, no more toil, no more vanity, no more night. And in the meantime, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who came to earth with a job to do, And he did his work passionately for his father. To use modern slang, he hustled, or we fail to hustle. Jesus said, 
My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And he did. He worked until he cried out, it is finished, and bowed his head. And his toil was the furthest thing from vanity. It was successful and fruitful beyond belief. It carries on to this day. As his kingdom expands and his church is being built. Therefore, I think that we can trust him with both our legacies and our gains. And this blows my mind. We're now graciously welcomed to join him in his work. Work that might just seem as pointless and unrewarding as any other work out there if it weren't for Christ triumphing over death. And that, my friends, changes everything. Listen to this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't miss it. Therefore, so therefore based on us having victory over death. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. Father, please instill these truths into our hearts today. Help us to have open eyes to the reality of life around us and yet not despair in you. Help us despair in what we should despair in and to find hope and joy and peace and strength in your work, wherever we are. Lord, we know you are good and you are gracious. We pray that you would do this in us in Jesus' name. Amen.